0: Let's pray. Father, as those beautiful voices and those beautiful words carry us along, we thank you that your spirit carried along Peter. And as the spirit moved, he wrote these words that thousands of years later we still turn to, knowing that it's the living word of God, that it's alive and active, that even now, It will do its work in us. What you alone can do, we ask you to do. We are desperate for you to open our eyes and open our ears. There's so much noise, so much chaos, so much self-righteousness, so much fear, so much anxiety. But Lord, you have the power with your still voice to move and to make us understand to make us believe again anew the wonder of the gospel. We need to be renewed, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I have you stand for the reading of God's word, I, I want to set the text up. So Peter speaks as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's always that way with God's word. And he says... The end of all things is at hand. That is not something that we simply believe as believers. We know it's true. When I was in seminary, Brian Chappell, who wrote the book Christ-Centered Preaching, whom Marcy Sproul said was the best book ever written on the subject, taught us how to unpack a passage to create a sermon. He gave us something called the fallen condition focus, which has this statement attached to it. I've shared it with you before. What do we have in common with those to or for whom the passage was written that requires the grace of the text? Somebody say it again. What do we have in common with those to or for whom the passage is written that requires the grace of the text? Well, one thing we have in common that's easy to see in this text is that Jesus... Has not returned. Peter said, The end of all things is at hand. Well, if it was true 2,000 years ago, it's still true today. In fact, we could say it's nearer still. However, we don't know if it will be another 2,000 years. 2,000 years. We could still be in the age of the early church. And Tim Keller. And John Piper will be known with others as early church fathers. We just don't know. And you may be saying, please, no. Come now, Lord Jesus, and I get it. But are you living in the reality that he could? I wonder how many of you today said to yourself, it could be today. I'm going to worship as if it is. I'm going to love as if it is. I'm going to pray as if it is. I bet very few of us thought about this. And I want to make something very clear. His return is not meant to be a doctrine that confuses us. We've let it. But his return is not meant to be a doctrine that confuses us, but a promise that motivates us. I believe that those who heard this letter read for the first time, believed that he would return in their lifetime. And Jesus, the powerful work of the Holy Spirit carrying Peter along, knew that it might be a long time. And so this isn't a misstatement. It's a reality that we should be living in light of his return, for the end of all things is at hand. That's something that we have in common with them. What we also have in common is that the very things that Peter is gonna tell them to focus on as the church are the things we should be focused on in the church. And if it is 10,000 years from now before he returns, it will be the same. These are the same things the church must focus on. So we're gonna spend two weeks in this little text. And as I read it, listen for the clear explanation and exhortation of who he's calling us to be. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 4, I will begin at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My very first sermon in seminary was this text. The good news is, the outline hasn't changed much. Preaching in seminary, you had 10 classmates with a sheet of paper, eight and a half by 11, with 50 questions to analyze your sermon as you went. And as they listened to you preach, they were basically saying, that's good, that's bad, that's not helpful. In that sermon, my verse, these men weren't there. They didn't have a strange moment of bringing in a piece of furniture in the middle of a sermon. Why is it here? For 13 years, this couch has been in my office. and For 13 years, I've had people sit here who shared with me so much victory and people who shared with me so much pain. Parents who've lost a child, couples who couldn't conceive a child, individuals who said, I'm so lonely, others who said, I'm so eager to serve. Plans have been made on this couch. Occasionally, I've laid on it, often with a bad headache. Really, because the weight of the world and sin is so great. Many times I've knelt and prayed with this couch for the last 13 years. But one of the most regular occurrences is that a couple, and this happens weekly, will come into my office, and they're in deep, deep trouble. And when they sit on the couch... One of them is here, as close as they can get to this edge. And the other is here, as close as they can get to this edge. And I listen, and I point them to Jesus. And some of you have been there, and I'm not about to tell your story specifically. So relax. And that might happen early in the day or late in the day but often at some other point in the day, there's a different couple in my office. And they're not well into their years of marriage, but they're about to get married. And they come in and I say, have a seat, and they sit so close to each other that it's actually a little awkward. (laughs) This morning I do not wanna talk about the marriage between a human woman and a human man which is the biblical reality of marriage, I want to talk about our union with Jesus and what it means to be the bride of Christ. 70, almost 70 new people are joining our church. And right now, they're like the premarital couple. They think our church could do no wrong. It's, it's amazing to them. And they're sitting right next to each other. And they just answered the same five questions that some of you answered 30 years ago. And many of you somewhere in between. And what happens often, just like it does in a marriage, is that the newness wears off. You realize, oh, I really did marry a sinner. Or I joined a church with a pastor who's a sinner, and others who are sinners. And suddenly, you begin to distance yourself. You're on the sin, others are in the sin. And it's understandable because we fail. I fail. I make mistakes. I make decisions sometimes that aren't very good. I forget things. No excuse, just a reality. And over time, you can grow deeply frustrated. Over time, you can get really cynical. It might be your own journey with Jesus that's become apathetic or dry, but it's real and you feel it. And it's normal. And it's ordinary. And it's troubling. And it's sad. But it's always been that way with the people of God. And what happens in those moments when you find yourself far away from the body of Christ, or you feel like you're maybe the only one who gets it and nobody else does, what happens is God's grace reminds us of renewal. The rhythms of renewal that we need every day His mercies are made new each morning. Do you know why? Because we need him to be. Seasons of renewal. Rhythms of renewal based on the Sabbath. Times of renewal throughout the day. And we as a body are in a season of renewal where we're asking because we believe God has led us to this moment for every member of this church and friend To look at their commitment to the Lord and to this particular body and to write your own renewal prayer. We want you to do that. It's in the journal, the reenter journal. We want everyone to do that. We want you to, to sense the power of who God is in His people. And that when we take seriously the things that Peter has mentioned in this text, it is unbelievable to think about what God can do. But we can't forget there is an enemy that wants to destroy those things, who doesn't want us to think about prayer and love and service, who wants us to grow distant and discouraged and frustrated and eventually unwilling do you even be a part of it? My parents got frustrated when I was six with our church, and they left, not to find another church, but to never go back. At six, I was like, another Saturday. They would say they still knew the Lord and loved the Lord, but they were, they were disobedient. Friends, God is calling us as his people to do the very same things that he has called his people to do. And it's hard because we fall short. And we need to deal with those shortcomings. I'm not saying we don't. Sometimes people come in and tell me things that I'm not aware of. Sometimes I'm very aware You know a lot of things that may be dissatisfying to you. But what we need to realize is that God is moving always in his body through his people. And that's what the church is, his body, his people. And this morning and next week, as we unpack this wonderful little text, you're going to see specifically what we can never Ever, ever get away from. And it's very clear, but so hard to do. So, what does he say? Coming to the end of his letter, or near the end of his letter, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Do you believe him? I do. More than believe him, I know it's true. He's going to come again. And when he comes again, will he see you, this this particular body of his church, expression of his body? Will he see us being faithful the best we can by his grace as a people who really are taking that vow, number four, seriously? We promise to support the church and its worship and work to the best of our ability. Imagine if I changed it today. Imagine if I said, do you promise to support the church and its worship and work to half of your ability? Would you think that was good? My second daughter will be getting married in July, so now twice I've had the chance of Listening to a young man ask me for my daughter's hand. Oh, that's so fun! <laughs> it is so fun. I've done it twice. Probably we'll get to do it again. One more time. But if the man, in response to my question, said, "Eh, 100%, best I can." Let's be realistic, Mark. He's not marrying my daughter. (laughs) You wouldn't interview for a job with less. You wouldn't let someone marry your child with less. And yet so often in the church, we're willing to give less. I'm not interested in less. I'm not interested in a low threshold of commitment that's less than what God calls us to. God calls us to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And Peter's saying, do that with the end in mind. The end, the promised return of Christ, is not meant to be confusing confusing it's a promise that's meant to motivate us so let's listen to what he says the end of all things is at hand therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers so the first thing that peter mentions is prayer In a wonderful book called The Power of Prayer or Power Through Prayer, Ian Bounds, it's a classic, says this, men are interested in methods, God is interested in men, men mighty in prayer. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying that methods never matter. He's not saying that process doesn't matter. He's not saying that things like plans don't matter. But what he's warning us of is that those things can become so consuming to us that we're no longer praying. Or that the level of our prayers and the amount of our prayers are not in comparison to the amount of time and energy we're giving to the machine. The reason Peter mentions prayer is because prayer Of all the work we do, and think about all the work this church does, is doing, and seeks to do. Of all the work we do, prayer is the work which supports and undergirds all other work. And so often it's given at the beginning of a meeting, and if we have time at the end. Friends, we need to be praying prayers that make Satan shudder. We need to be praying against the spirit of chaos and confusion and of blindness and deafness. We need to be praying against an idolatry in many forms, consuming people, even people who say they are in Christ. Prayer is powerful. Satan especially attacks it here because of its power. And think of the one who's writing these words. Think of his own failure when Jesus said, stay here and pray. Well, he went into the garden and bled, and he couldn't. Sometimes people say, I want our church to be known for something. Let's be known for prayer. Let's be known for love. Let's be known for service. And out of those things, what might God do? But if those things are lacking, we're in deep trouble Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Well, the reason he says self-controlled is because if you really believe the end is near, you might lose your mind. You might be busy doing all sorts of things. Do you remember Y2K? Do you remember some people? Some of you? I wasn't here yet, but I know who you are. Be clear-minded. Rick Lehman, first missionary sent from this church, often says, we close our eyes, we close our ears, and our mind goes crazy, and it does. We need to be clear-minded. He then uses the word sober, and the word sober means to be free of intoxicants. It means to not be drunk. It means to not be numb. It means to be able to focus and understand what's happening so that you can pray. You might not have a temptation with alcohol, but you might be drunk with anxiety. You might be high on self-righteousness. You might be blitzed by the approval of others so many things can keep us from being sober. He says, be sober so that you can pray. And remember, this prayer is to be done in light of the coming of Christ. Unless you think I've taken a strange theological turn towards Unhealthy focus on the end times. Listen to this theologian. It ought to be the chief concern of the believer, chief concern, to fix one's mind constantly on Christ's second advent the theologian of the Holy Spirit, John Calvin. If we didn't think about it today or last Sunday or the Sunday before, we need a wake-up call, don't we? The word that Peter was carried along to write by the Holy Spirit, that the end of all things is at hand, therefore pray, is just as true today as it was then. He moves on. He gives us two more. Fix your eyes up here, please. He says in verse eight, above all, now before you look at what's coming, what would you put there? Above all, dot, dot, dot. Above all, dot, dot, dot. What would you put there? What's missing? What's most important? He's covered prayer already. He says, above all, putting it in its rightful place, above all, keep. Keep means it's happening. Keep means, therefore, it's possible for it to keep happening. Keep means they're doing it. So this isn't something that's impossible as the Spirit of God fills us. Keep loving one another. But he goes on and says, earnestly. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, as I have loved you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know you are my disciples if you have great plans, great methods, great process. All men, all men, not some, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another earnestly or fervently you could use either word for this Greek word. But let me tell you what this Greek word means. The Greek word for earnest or fervent means intense strain. It's not phileo he's talking about. It's not eros. Phileo is the feeling love. Eros is the erotic love. Agape is the volitional love. It's a choice to love when someone is unlovable. It's God's love for us. And the word earnest or fervent means intense strain. It's an unceasing activity which normally involves a degree of intensity and perseverance. It is actually what is required when Phileo and Eros has gone in a couple and they're far away. It's the, I'm going to move closer to you even if you're not willing to move closer to me. It's incredible. That's why this dark world can be so attracted by a love that they can't quite comprehend. The word earnest, this intense strain was used to describe horses when their legs were fully stretched in an intense gallop. It's what in medicine they would use to describe the stretching of a muscle to its limits. What a great word. The only other time this word is used in the New Testament is here. Listen as I read. In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. Falling to the ground, and Peter was sleeping. Wake up. Jesus was so stretched, his love so stretched. This is my friend, Alicia. Hello, (laughs) I love you so much. (laughs) Just wanted to say good morning. I'm so sorry. Don't be sorry. You and I have a great friendship. And by the way, if you haven't watched the videos we have, she's in the very first one and it's fantastic. It really is. So I don't think of this as an interruption, Alicia. I think of it as a spirit of God moment. And if you disagree with me, I don't care. <laughs> we'll talk later. We will talk later. <laughs> Stretch. It's painful. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense. But that kind of love is what Peter is calling the church to. It's the kind of love that Peter thought he had enough strength to do himself until three times he said, I don't know the man. And then he experienced that love, witnessing Christ dying on the cross and even more when Jesus on the shoreline with the fire cooking fish said, Peter, do you love me three times? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. This love is a love that stretches and it stretched the arms and the legs and the body and the mind of our Savior and his heart, that muscle, which then burst. So that we could be part of his body taking that message of that stretching love to all the world. And Peter says, above all, love One another. Lastly, and we're going to spend more time on this next week, he says in verse 10: As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Setting your appetite for next week, this is what that means. As a believer in Jesus, you have talents, you have treasure, you have time, but you also have specific gifts that the Spirit of God gives. Varied grace given to various members of the body. We need each other. We need people who have been given a gift to do certain things, and people who have been given a gift to do different things. We need each other because God designed it that way. And when we are eager to serve him, with the end of all things in mind, with all that he has given us, every dime is his. Every minute is his. All of you, belongs to him. When we live that way, what God, I believe, will do through his body for his glory is really beyond what we can ask or imagine. And no matter what it is, it must include prayer and love. And service, all with the constant reality that he could return at any moment. That doctrine is not meant to be confusing, it's meant to be a promise that motivates us. Robbie said this at the beginning of our public confession about vows we all fall short and you're going to and so am I sometimes that creates real destruction sometimes worse than others and we need to deal with that but the last thing I'll say that he says about love is that love covers over a multitude of sins It doesn't mean they're swept under a rug. It doesn't mean they're not acknowledged. It means that there is something so powerful in Christ that enables us to love one another as he loved us. And Jesus is the one who said this. All men will know you're my disciples when you love one another. Over the next couple of weeks, especially if you're a member of this church, whether you just joined today or you were at the high school on the day it started, ask God to lead you in offering him a prayer, a prayer of renewal, your prayer of renewal. Lord Jesus, the clarity of this passage is really remarkable. The power of this word present in our midst, living inside us, gives us everything we need to be the people that you've called us to be. And Lord, we have so much work to do and so many shortcomings. And we don't need to deny that. We need to be humbled by it and repent from it. But Lord, let us never do it apart from you, apart from prayer, apart from love, and apart from a deep, deep desire to use what you've given us to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.